Welcome to But Heard Lyrics, the show where we delve into the meaning and politics behind each song from the new War on Women album, Wonderful Hell. I'm Shauna Potter, singer and lyricist for War on Women, and your host. In this episode, we are tackling the eighth track, a song we've jammed down your throat all season. Her? Oh, let's, oh, okay. I hope you're not too tired of the song to stick around until the end to hear it in its entirety. Um, oh, uh, well, now, okay, so right now I'm just thinking about what do we play as the outro music for this episode? Let's let Brooke surprise us. How about that? So why don't you take a guess now and then see if you're right at the end of the episode when I'm like, blah, 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 buy our stuff. Uh, whoever wins gets a high five um, wearing gloves and fully sanitized. Okay, let's dig in. Her is one of our songs that I consider to be an art project that happens to be a song. All I'm doing is naming things that female politicians are criticized for in the media that have nothing to do with their politics. Um, I think the lyrics could almost go on top of any music uh, in my mind, but Brooks had this really great off-kilter riff, uh, which we talk about in our interview towards the end, that worked so well for these short little lines. But her this, but her that. Um, not but hurt, for the record. Uh, <laughs> but maybe that's one of Sue's fake lyrics. And of course, it all started with but her emails, one of those chants, annoying as hell, from Trump and his followers who don't actually give a shit about emails or anything substantial, really. And the only good thing we got out of it was all the but her emails memes especially any crossovers with The Handmaid's Tale. Um, but this idea that, that it wasn't about Hillary Clinton, right, that she was a placeholder for our country's disdain for women in general, well, that idea kept gnawing at me. So, you know, so one day I just started writing down uh, all the critiques uh, I've heard about women in politics, um, some of them contradictory even. And then I rearranged them, of course, to flow a little better, which also dictated how long and how often the verse riff would be played. I then end the song naming many, not all, uh, but many prominent female politicians uh, over this country's history. Uh, truth be told, Sue wasn't quite sure how this song would end up. I think she was concerned we would celebrate shitty politicians just because they are women. So you'll have to keep listening to hear us get into all that when I interview the band. So stay tuned for that after my incredible interview with media critic and author of Reality Bites Back, Jennifer Posner, who has written about the impossible standards that women are held to in media for two decades. I can tell you now, there will be a bonus episode with Jennifer because, well, She's a fountain of information, okay? A leading expert on the portrayal of women in media. And she's so generous with her knowledge that she just had too much to share to, to fit into one episode. So if you want to hear more from her, including the story of how we met, join me on Patreon and get all the bonus content. Speaking of... The official sponsor of But Her Lyrics is First Defense Krav Maga out of Virginia. So big thanks to Nick and the whole team. Go check them out and support them. You can be a sponsor, too, by joining me on Patreon. 
support this podcast, get a shout out, and tons of perks and access to exclusive and behind the scenes stuff by becoming a patron today. Like the following patrons who are the best patrons in the entire world, huge shout out to recruits Stefan and Yulina and meatheads Melissa, Lauren, Zachary, and Galen. And you know, patrons, don't forget, you can ask questions about the podcast, the band, our music, previous guests, whatever, and get them answered on the episodes. So ask away once you sign up at patreon.com slash Shauna Potter. Interview time! Jennifer Posner, thank you so much for joining me. Can you please introduce yourself to everyone? What's your deal? What's my deal? Right now, my deal is post-pandemic brain fog. But usually, usually my deal is that I'm I'm a media critic and I'm a media literacy educator. And I've been doing this work since the 90s, um, specifically at the intersections of gender and race in media. So you're the perfect person to interview for this episode. Uh, I did a good job in choosing you. You're, you're, you're spot on. <laughs> I did want to ask, did you get a chance to, to listen to the song? I did. I did. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, you don't have to like it, uh, but <laughs> I was wondering, as as a media critic, like, did it hit you in any particular way? Like, did I get it right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you did. I um, it reminded it, it felt it felt very um, '90s Riot girl to me, which makes me happy. Uh, because, I'll take that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, hey, that's that's where I come from. Um, '90s and and feminist activism in the '90s. It wasn't a riot girl, but I was around uh, that community, and and I have a lot of love in my heart still for uh, you know the radical cheerleaders who do like yeah. Uh, I don't know if you remember at all the radical cheerleaders, but I was doing a lot of street theater uh, direct action in the late '90s, early 2000s uh, against war, um, a street theater around. Um, uh, economic injustice issues and wealth equality and campaign finance and all that. And uh, so there's a community in New York of people who would do a variety of different kinds of activism, anti-gentrification work. And I'd always run into the radical cheerleaders. You know, I, I wish I could remember some of their cheers, but, the but um, you know, ripped up, ripped up tights and, and you know, bag like plastic bags as pom-pom dirty plastic bags as pom-poms and you know uh, riot don't die it get up get out and try it things like that <laughs> um and and your song kind of felt a little bit in that tradition to me um but it also it also felt and i this is i think you will understand what i mean when i say this i hope you're listeners do because this is not an insult this is a jen is exhausted after 25 years or more of doing this it felt it felt like oh god we have to keep doing this like <laughs> you know what sure. I mean? like, not, oh, not yeah, that you're sure. has to keep doing this but that this is still going on i've been writing about sexist double standards in news coverage of female politicians since the mid 90s and i wrote a piece one of the first sort of really big pieces I did on the subject was when I was directing the women's desk at Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting, I think in the year, I think this piece was in the year 2000 because it was during the, um, during the Bush-Gore election cycle. A piece that was titled Cosmetic Coverage, I think I, I gave that headline to it, um, about how uh, news outlets consistently covered women in terms of their hair, their shrill voices, 
their whiny, naggy sounding uh, tone, um, their weight, their mm. ankles, their quote unquote cankles, their eyeshadow. Um, what, how selfish would they be if they won because they couldn't take care of their kids? Mm. Um, how self, what would happen to their grandkids if they won, um, et cetera. Uh, I mean, over and over, there was a whole section on uh, Kath, Catherine or Kathleen, Catherine, Catherine Harris, um, who was the Florida rep, who was it, or the Florida official, I don't remember if she was a rep or an official at this point, who was in charge of the county where, with the hanging chads, I believe. Um, she basically, this woman had a role in determining uh whether Florida was going to be called for Bush or Gore. And there was a lot of sort of wacky hijinks involved. And by wacky hijinks, I mean fraud and corruption. Sure. <laughs> um, and she was a terrible corrupt operative. However, she also had very extreme eye makeup. And that was almost all that news media and late night comedians could talk about. Her, um, there was one outlet, I don't remember which one at this point, but if you go, it's, I think my cosmetic coverage piece is still in the archives at Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting. You can find the exact, uh, all of the references, because I, I cite all of my sources in that piece. Uh, but you can find the exact quote, but it was something like, you know, if we can't even trust her to apply her mascara correctly, how can we trust her to uh, fairly adjudicate the election? You mm -hmm. can't trust her to fairly adjudicate the election because she's an operative paid for, paid by right-wing foundations or whatever it was at the time. I don't remember the level of corruption, but there was a, my point in the piece was about her. There were so many reasons that journalists should be skeptical of this particular public official. There were so many factual problems. There were so many political problems with this particular public official. And yet it was just, let's make fun of her for being ugly and not knowing how to use eye makeup. Wow. What? The reason I, I've written about this in so many different ways for so many different years. But the reason I remember that piece is it's the first time I, I delved into the LexisNexis Jews database and tried to see how quickly I could find the dress sizes of a wide variety of female politicians. No, Jennifer, no. And within maybe 10, 15 minutes, I found the dress sizes of Hillary Clinton and Geraldine Ferraro oh and just a, sh I mean, I don't know, you want me to curse on this? Just a shit ton of, of all of our female candidates and leaders described in not only by in these um, incredibly reductive ways, but literally by their weight and their sizes. And I, it went as far back as um, Tom Brokaw, it he was introducing Geraldine Ferraro as the first female vice presidential candidate. Um, he introduced her at the Democratic National Convention, I believe it was. You feel free to fact check via that article. You know, I'd only be fact checking myself okay. from 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> but uh, but um, so this might not be exactly ver verbatim, but I believe it was the Democratic National Convention. And Tom Brokaw said, Geraldine Ferraro, the first female vice presidential nominee, size six. Ugh. Yeah. And it, it never changes. On the campaign trail uh, at that time when Hillary Clinton was running for Senate, there were articles about how she had whittled her weight down to a fighting weight, uh, whittled her dress size down to a fighting weight of, I believe it was size eight, by eating uh, no, uh, little more than lettuce leaves at lunch. Something like that. That was a, that was a direct quote from political columnists. 
<laughs> right. You know? Wow. And, and then there were, of course, style section, endless style section articles about the clothing and the hair and the weight and the um, fashion sense and et cetera, uh, of all the different female vice president, female um, candidates for Senate and for Congress, uh, for uh, local races across the country. Um, Condoleezza Rice uh, was, uh, was it Robin Javon? I believe it was Robin Javon in the Washington Post, but it might've it might have been somebody else. I'm pretty sure it was Robin Javon. Uh, did an entire piece about her fashion and called her a dominatrix. Because of because she liked uh, black coats and and tall boots, um, this was the most powerful woman in America, and arguably possibly the world at the time. And they were they were reducing her to gender and race stereotypes based on her clothing and calling her a dominatrix, um, sexualizing this black woman who was in power. Um, because you can't have a woman in power or a black woman in power unless she's sexualized, I guess. Um, unless you knock her down a peg, right? Right, or, or 10. Um, and we can't <laughs> underestimate the, the people, people today might not realize just how egregious that was, even more, it sounds egregious even on its face, right? But 20 years ago, we didn't have news outlets ever doing that to male candidates. Trump changed the game in terms of political columnists, A-section reporters, late night comedians, et cetera, making fun of male mm. politicians. Because Trump is this over-the-top uh, narcissist figure who, you know, his face is uh, is orange and his eyes are white because he uses bad makeup and bad spray tans. His hair is some sort of Herculean feat of cotton candy and physics and hairspray. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he's, he, his ties are weirdly long. There are things to legitimately discuss about his appearance, even if it's not like in the style section, I still maintain that it's not legitimate to focus on a politician, even if uh, they're, they themselves are make themselves into clowns. I still think a politician should be, as a journalist, this is my stance, bold I know, but let's, <laughs> as journalists, cover politicians based on their policy decisions and the impact they'll have on the public, not on whether or not they look like clowns. Yeah. Um, but in the style sections, and, and for late night comedy hosts, of course, Trump did sort of make himself fair game. You don't, you don't do the, like, he was very far out of the norm for- right. Uh, for that kind of, for, for general aesthetic norms. He, he put himself outside general aesthetic norms. Um, but because of that, there has been five, six years worth of, uh, of male politicians, particularly Trump, but occasionally others talked about in terms of their hair or their clothes or pretty boy, et cetera. Um, before that, that really wasn't happening. The only time that happened was uh, a spate, a short spate of uh, news coverage, uh, sort of criticizing Al Gore for having an expensive haircut, and that was basically it. Right, that was like the worst of it. I mean, we've got Chris Christie has had a lot of coverage, and then recently Ted Cruz, and and the the yeah the there's always been there's always been fat shaming of politicians, male and female. Yeah. That's a little different because it's a diff that that's, it's not good. I'm not in, excusing it in any way, but the, 
intense focus on female politicians' appearances as well as other gender-based uh, markers. Um, are they mothers? If they're not mothers, why aren't they mothers? If they are mothers, why are they running for office? Right. Who's going to take care of their kids? Um, are they, you know, uh, Chris Matthews in the, in the um, 2008 presidential campaign talking about 2008 or 2012, I believe it was 2008, talking about how Hillary Clinton uh, reminded him of everybody's second, first, first nagging wife, something like that. Um, hectoring, uh -huh. you, words like hectoring, words like nagging, um, words like shrill. Uh, there are so many, and I've maintained this as well, there are so many legitimate reasons, policy-based reasons to critique Hillary Clinton. Her quote unquote cankles, do not have any impact on foreign policy. They don't have any impact on stop and frisk. Her dress size doesn't have any impact on uh, funding for the Violence Against Women Act. Um, you know, positives and negatives treat women candidates and women politicians as if they actually are vying for or holding power. And the other side of the the other side of this is that while the focus on female politicians has always been so so uh, enmeshed in these trivializing, uh, gendered, often demeaning, often insulting, but even when they're supposedly complimentary, this particular candidate is pretty. She's ladylike. She's you know diminutive, etc. They're always uh, marginalizing, and. While those kinds of double standards are in play constantly with female politicians, even to this day, the focus on uh, AOC's mm -hmm. lipstick and her hair and her suits and how much she spends on her clothing and she must not actually be a socialist because she got a nice haircut or wears a nice outfit, et cetera. Right. Um, you know, or, you know, first she's too much of a socialist, then she's not socialist enough, um, you know, but it. it all of that focus serves to remind people, remind potential voters, that women are ladies first and political actors a distant second. Studies have shown that this kind of coverage um, diminishes female participation in the political process. It prevents, it, it dissuades many women from running for office in the first place. And when they do run for office, this kind of coverage often makes it more difficult for them to compete and win their, uh, their offices. And when they're in office, it makes it more difficult for them to be effective. Mm. Because as this kind of coverage happens, the other kind of coverage, the coverage that focuses on their experience or their policy agendas or their votes or their legislation or their efforts to pass legislation is almost um, uh, invisible. There, there's so little of it compared to, to male politicians. So when women aren't invisible, when political women aren't invisible, they're visible for the wrong reasons, for their hair and their clothes and their cankles and their, uh, you know, uh, being called uh, cunts and all of this by radio hosts and TV hosts and newspapers and magazines, et cetera, um, social media. So all of that put together, um, it really serves to diminish the ability of half the population to participate and compete in the political process. 
Do you find that the way that female or non-cis male politicians are treated is different from how non-male people in general are treated in pop culture? Or is the problem is that we kind of treat them the same as general pop culture figures when really we should be concentrating on their politics? Is, is there a different layer there added or is it the same and that's what's wrong? I mean, yes and no. It, it can sort of boil down to is misogyny and heteropatriarchy and uh, transphobia um, is the factor of those things in the way that um, all uh, women and non-binary people are treated in news and in pop culture. Is that also the way that um, non-binary and trans and women politicians are treated? And does that, uh, you know, is that the problem? Um, you know, there's some of that, but I think that uh, it's it's not the same. It's worse because average people. You know, if, if you're going to if you're going to do a, sort of a quote unquote man on the street interview. Right. I don't mean like man, uh, there's no like yeah. you know, in the news industry, you call it a man on the street interview. Is it like this, this, that, whatever. <laughs> Which, of course, you do. Of course, that's what it's called. No one's changed it yet. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. It's right. it's never person on the street. It's never Reporting this person on the street, on the street or <laughs> non It's just like the the universal the 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 way in which um, the rights of man is supposed to be for everybody. Right. right. But anyway, if you're doing a man on the street story, and it's uh, you know you're asking random women and men and non-binary people and trans people their opinions about, you know, a new movie that's out or the latest trend or a fire that's raging in their community or whatever it is. And you might have, uh, you know, your reporter say or, uh, or do something sexist or transphobic or homophobic or whatever, or racist. Um, that's obviously gross and unprofessional, but that individual person doesn't have the power to change the lives of everybody in their region or their state or their country, depending on the role that they're either uh, um, campaigning for or in office for, right? It's, yes, there is misogyny. Yes, there is transphobia. Yes, there is homophobia. Yes, there is racism in news and pop culture treatments of everyday people. But when those things are applied to the political sphere, it serves to elevate one particular demographic, cis white male uh, politicians, as being the only ones who are inherently supposed to be in those roles, inherently qualified. That, that's the thing about this kind of coverage. Women and, uh, and non-binary people are treated as if they are not inherently qualified for office because these other things are supposed to be more newsworthy. So what makes me so mad and what I'm trying to get across in this song is that that there's no right way to be for women, right? right. No, it doesn't matter right. what you say, what you do, how you dress, whatever. It will never be right. It'll never be enough. There's always something to critique. Is that changing at all with the election of Kamala Harris as VP? Do you see any shift or has Trump fucked it up <laughs> because now everyone is focused on appearance more? <laughs> I mean, look, it's, 
both? <laughs> um, I think the answer is always Trump. To, to almost every question, the answer is Trump fucked it up. So sure, uh, let's let's go with that. Um, and feel free to retroactively ask any question, and the answer could be Trump fucked it up. Put this, right? Yeah, all future podcast episodes is going to have you know. Let's check in with Jennifer real quick. What about Trump? Trump fucked it up. Wow, who knew about this issue? That's great. That's perfect. Oh, I like that. Might be the theme of this generally yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay Um, but do we see things getting better or are we just in a state where like we've gone too far and it's not changing anytime soon the real answer is yes and no there's there has been a lot of progress and there's also a lot of stasis right so one of the ways in which media coverage has changed in a gargantuan way um since when i started and even, even you know, so when I started in the mid-90s as basically a teenager, in the early 90s as a teenager, in the mid-90s, in my early 20s writing about this stuff, um, to now in my mid-40s writing about this stuff, but even even in, changed in the last, say, six to eight years, yeah. um, is the fact that before, only a few years ago, there were very, very few, precious few, women um, who had major columns in national newspapers, oh, who okay. had who were A-section news reporters on a regular basis, who had political talk shows on cable news, um, who, were, who were turned to as, um, as the arbiters of, uh, of opinion and of reporting and of analysis. Um, that that shift has meant that uh, you now have a lot more discussion when sexism, um, racism, homophobia come up in political coverage. Um, that plus the fact that we now have social media to get past the gatekeepers. Now there's often, I, I hesitate to say always, but very often when this sort of thing happens, it's commented upon. Before, there was a period of time of about 10, 15 years where if I was not writing about it, it almost never got covered. And I'm not saying that as an ego thing. I was exhausted. I wanted <laughs> You had your work company. cut out for you, I'm sure. I, I wanted company, but there, like, you know, in the 90s, I it was impossible to get pieces like this placed. So I had to write them for feminist newspapers that don't exist anymore because we've lost all our feminist newspapers, but you know, papers like Sojourner, the women's forum were the only place I could uh, place these stories because I I would pitch them to elsewhere and they, that they would, you know, the editors, the male editors would say it was relevant or they would say, or they would say, we did a piece on this five years ago. It's, Etc. So we we've already wow. done it five years ago. We've done it. They never say we've written, we've run, uh, or we we public. I even got we published a woman, or we published a feminist last year, or last so we're month, good. whatever. <laughs> it's like they would never tell George Will we published another white guy, so we don't need to publish you. And they certainly wouldn't say we published a story on the economy three weeks ago, we don't need to publish another story on the economy. We published a story on healthcare five years ago. We don't need to, you know, but that was that was the landscape I was facing when I was trying to, to write about this. Um, when I say I was the only one, I don't mean I was the only one 
anywhere. There, there were people writing about it and studying it in academia. And before I was at the Women's Desk at Fair, uh, Laura Flanders ran the Women's Desk at Fair, and she wrote about this stuff in the in the late '80s and early '90s, um, and throughout the '90s. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there were some people, but in, in independent media, but in terms of corporate media, this kind of discussion did not happen. Um, Another thing, for example, uh, I can say it now because enough time has gone by, but think about how many women moderated presidential and vice presidential debates in the 2020 election cycle. This is new. This is very new. In, I believe it was, two, it was either the 2008 or 2012 cycle. I can't remember now because, you know, blame, blame pandemic. Um, but I was brought in as a speaker slash consultant to talk about women in in media, in particular with women in news as well as pop culture at Turner Broadcasting in Atlanta. Wow. And I was speaking for, uh, in front of a couple hundred programmers and executives and staffers of the one of the biggest news companies and pop and, and entertainment companies in the world. And they were, they had seen misrepresentation. Yeah, so it was 2012 because they had seen misrepresentation. Oh, okay. That's how they found me. Yeah. Um, the documentary misrepresentation. Um, and they wanted me to help them understand sexism in media. And so one of the things that I, uh, and they, they gave me, they, they wanted me to teach them all about sexism in the media and how to solve it and how to solve it in a way that didn't involve any money. Oh in 30 God. minutes. No, in, first they said in 20 minutes. Stop in 20 it. minutes. No. And I was like, I, I advocated. I, I always, I was able to get 10 more minutes from them. Yeah, oh, my they wanted, God. It was, uh, it was amazing. Um, I hope they paid but, uh, you so fucking well. It is harder to do a 30-minute training than a two-hour oh, one. Do you know what I'm saying? It is so oh much God. harder. Um, <sighs> the, so, so, in my, so I do this. I do this this speech and this Q&A in 30 minutes where I'm supposed to try and help them understand sexism in news and entertainment media and how to fix it with no money. Wow. Um, and one of the things that I talked about was how at that time there had not been women moderating any presidential debates in approximately 20 years. Mm. And there had been, uh, right around that time, there were two teenage girls who had a small petition going around that started to get to pick up steam and uh, around, you know, we need a woman presidential debate moderator. And the Commission on Presidential Debates were like, you know, basically did the equivalent of patting these girls on the head and was like, it's so nice that you care about politics. We'll take it under consideration, but also fuck you, we're not going to do anything. Yeah. Um, and most of the, and the thing is the Commission on Presidential Debates is in charge of uh, setting up the debates and et cetera, but these media companies choose who they send to yeah. them, right? So they have a role. Yeah. And one of the things that I said, and it was clear at that time that nothing was gonna change. The petition was getting coverage, but the CPD was like, eh. So one of the solutions, the costs you nothing and actually gets you play and attention and can make you some money and can, you know, uh, be good for your PR, put Christian, uh, Christian Amanpour up 
as one of the moderators for a debate about foreign policy. Put, um, and I just, I listed a whole lot of their female um, political correspondents and foreign correspondents and said, have one of them be a debate moderator, pressure the CPD to use one of them instead of your constant parade of the same white guys who always nominate, who always moderate these debates. Um, And then a few months later, they didn't, they didn't, it it wasn't Christiane Amanpour who I had hoped it would be because she would have been a substantive, more substantive moderator, but they did put forth Candy Crowley and she did become a presidential debate moderator. And I was never able to take public credit for it. (laughs) <laughs> but I, but I'm pretty sure that that was one of the main reasons because they uh, wow. the CPD was so misogynistic and condescending to those teen girls and nothing seemed like it was going to change and then I have this meeting with them at Turner and then they and then Turner's and then you know CNN's Candy Crowley becomes a moderator but think about the fact that up until that point women did not have a say in shaping the conversation about that that American voters get to uh, to listen into about who uh, various candidates are, what their positions are on what issues, right? If you don't have a debate moderator who cares about issues of racial justice, they're not going to ask any questions about racial justice, or if they do, they're not going to be nuanced. They're not going to know the right, right follow-up questions to answer those. Ask those politicians when they spew pablum in response. Um, they're not going to um, be able to fact check in the moment uh, because they happen to have that knowledge base. If somebody lies in their answer, they won't notice that it's a lie. Mm-hmm. You know, same thing with gender justice questions, right? So if you don't have any women moderators for decades of presidential debates. You did have, Gwen Eiffel had moderated vice presidential debates. So that was, so people kind of confused the issue. And let's all just say a moment of, we miss Gwen Eiffel. (laughs) I miss Gwen Eiffel. Um, But, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, you asked about, this is, this is all because you asked if things have changed. And Things have changed in a lot of structural ways. We have more women in positions of power in newsmaking jobs, um, editorial jobs, more women who have their own uh, talk shows on cable. And in particular, you finally have black women who have talk shows. You had mm-hmm. Melissa Harris Perry's show was a gate was an absolute game changer. And though she's no longer on MSNBC, you now have Joy Reid and you have a lot of other women of color, black women, as well as some other women of color who have their own political talk shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have women like Zerlina Maxwell, a very proud feminist, um, racial justice activist uh, or racial justice advocate, I want to say, not activist necessarily, um, having their own uh, stakes in media and making, helping to shape the narrative. So that has gone a long way in at least bringing some of these issues to the forefront. Um, But the big structural problems, um, there are still very few women and people of color high up in the, in the highest roles, the clout positions, CFOs, CEOs, um, even uh, newsroom managers, um, editors-in-chief, uh, and certainly owners of media conglomerates. Um, so with white, cis, wealthy men still being the ones who ultimately make all the decisions top-down, um, there's still a, a long way to go. Um, but yeah, there, there's some change, but the there's been some progress. 
uh, I, okay, so then as like average citizens, what should we be on the lookout for? How do we make sure we don't fall for the sexist bullshit? Or what should we be advocating for to make sure that there's more change? Okay, this is a fantastic question. Love this question. Love you for asking it. Um, so media literacy and media activism are crucial. Misogyny, racism, transphobia in news coverage um, does not change without public pressure. So we have a ton of options now, more so than ever before, in that we have so many different ways to get past the gatekeepers, to get these, uh, to get our concerns across. Twitter, TikTok, uh, Facebook, public shaming of companies when they do the wrong thing. Um, but when I say public shaming, I don't mean, let me be very clear. I don't mean to contribute to uh, extra toxicity in the social media sphere. I mean, uh, I don't mean, hey, CNN, you fuckwads, don't, why are you on your bullshit again? I don't mean that. They're not going to take that seriously. That just, that just self-modernizes right. us. The thing is, I, and I'm not even yeah. saying there's anything wrong with feeling that. I feel that sometimes, even as a journalist, right? When I say putting public shame on companies or on, uh, or on uh, advertisers for those media companies, I mean in a way that they can hear us. Yes. So on Tuesday, in your broadcast that was hosted by so-and-so, this guest said this incredibly inaccurate or incredibly homophobic or incredibly misogynistic or incredibly racist thing. Here's why it was inaccurate. Here's what you need to do about it. And... You know, you can tag the host, you can tag the network, you can tag the PR team for that network. Mm. Um, you can you can organize with friends before you even post it, so that everybody, so that you can it, things don't things often don't just go viral. It, it, there's a lot of online offline strategy that makes a thing. Uh, take off, right? Yeah. So work together with uh, as many people as you can to know that people are going to retweet, people are going to share, people are going to uh, sort of big up your action alert. Maybe it's an action alert where you, you know, so you, you could have a tweet. You could also send out good old fashioned, good old fashioned action alerts like I used to do when we only had email and didn't have social media. Um, you can send, whether it's via email or social media, um, you know, hey, we want letters to the editor. Newsrooms still read letters to the editor. They read them more than tweets. They, mm. you know, when people are motivated to send a physical letter to a newsroom, they consider that every letter that they receive is representative of a significantly large number of people who were not, who didn't take the time to write it out themselves and put it in an envelope and send it to them. Um, so, you know, you can, you can find the addresses of the editors in chief or of the station manager or whoever it is. And when you send a, a letter to the editor um, or you ask people to do so, you can provide, if you ask people to do letters to the editor, you can provide sample language. Here's what was wrong with this particular news article. Here's what was wrong with this particular broadcast. Here are the inaccuracies. Here's what we want as a follow-up, or here's what we want as a retraction. Here's the kind of story we need to see more of. If you do not, 
if, if you're marginalizing sources of color, if you're marginalizing women's sources, you're only talking, let's say, let's say there's an entire story about um, reproductive justice issues and there are no women and there are no, uh, there are no people, women or, 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 um, uh, or, or people with or uteruses trans or whatever. Men. Yeah, yeah there, there are no women or trans men who uh, could possibly give birth in that story. There are no sources who whose um, bodies and lives are innately affected by that story. Then, not only should you be pointing out that that story was uh, had a, you know had a glaring oversight, but you can also provide them with names and content information always check before you give names and contact information with the people you're suggesting, make right. sure they're up for it. Um, but you can provide, I, I've done this constantly. Uh, and this is a way that I've been able to get people placed in news outlets on a regular basis. But you, when pe even, even when people ask me for interviews, if I think that they should be asking a person of color for the interview instead of me, I will tell them no. And here's who you should call instead. And here's their contact information. But I always run it by those people. first. I love this philosophy of like not only telling people, hey, you fucked up and here's why and here's why it matters, but then saying, OK, now here's what you do to fix it, because in right. every training I do, sometimes I train the trainer kind of thing. And sometimes yeah. I'm just doing the training. And my whole philosophy is um, I, if I don't make it as easy and as cheap as possible for you to change what you're already doing, you're not going to do it. And so it's yeah. on, it's in my best interest to make my trainings about safer spaces like fun and like yeah. and easy and like and here's your to-do list and here you go so that it actually gets done. Exactly. Exactly. But uh but okay, so I started with a thing you can do, but you the first thing that you asked was what should we be looking out for? Um that's a media literacy question and it, and it's there are a million ways I can answer it. Um, I will direct you to the Fun with Media Literacy chapter in my book, Reality Bites Back, which has a ton of very actionable ways to, uh, to um, apply critical thinking skills to the media that we consume. The book is about uh, misogyny and racism in reality TV, among other forms of exploitation in reality TV. But the Fun with Media Literacy chapter, although those, um, although the, the tools and resources and games that I came up with and activities I came up with in that chapter are pegged to reality TV, they're also very, very relevant to news. Mm. Um, so everything from um, ways that you can, the ways that parents can have conversations with their kids about how news media or uh, entertainment media make them feel, how st particular kinds of representation make them feel, um, hmm. to uh, bingo cards, bingo games that you can play while watching um, everything from a presidential debate to a reality show to a movie. Oh, that's um, funny. That's fun. You know, to letter to sample letters to the editor. Um, there's a but but um, there's also a very useful media literacy deconstruction, a set of media literacy deconstruction questions that um, I was able to reprint from a group that doesn't exist anymore, but was brilliant, a critical media literacy group uh, called the Media Literacy Project that was based in New Mexico. Um, 
that we, you know, we just don't fund these programs as much as we need to. So after a couple of decades, they ended up uh, folding a few years ago. Uh, brilliant organization. I hope their archives are still online. If they are, you can get some great stuff there. If not, um, at least there's the deconstruction questions in the chapter, uh, this media literacy chapter in Reality Bites Back. But some of those questions um, are really important to think about for any piece of media we engage with. But when it comes to coverage of women in politics or, you know, cis women in politics, trans people in politics, et cetera, um, people of color in politics, uh, it's, it, it can be particularly useful. So let's, uh, things like who created this message? Who owns this message? Who profits mm. from this message? How would this message change? Um, who, whose values are upheld in this message and whose values are either diminished or completely invisible in this message? How would this message shift? How would it look different? How would it sound different? How would it um, narratively change if a different set of people um, were involved in its creation or were involved as sources as subjects of the message. So when I say the message, I mean, you know, whether it's a newspaper article or a broadcast report or a pop, a late night comedy show or whatever it is, um, what is the gender and the race and the class and the sexuality and the uh, gender orientation and the um, immigration status and the disability or physical ability status of the people involved as subjects, as sources, as shapers, as behind the scenes creators of this message? And would it, would it change? Um, would the things being said, would the frame, what is the frame of the message? Would that frame shift if you had a wider variety of voices from uh, historically marginalized groups helping to frame and shape that message. Another thing we should always think about, and this is really, I think this is a very useful thing for uh, thinking about how uh, political coverage plays out in particular related to women and people of color in, new, in political coverage. Um, what is the text of the message versus what is the subtext? So, you know, if, if, in a, if a, a piece about... Um, AOC and uh, her her fancy suits or whatever uh, existed in a bubble, and we didn't have this larger uh, diminishing narrative about women politicians as being only relevant for their looks or their clothing or their marital or not marital status, et cetera, their motherhood or not mother parenthood status, et cetera. Um, if it existed in a bubble, then it would just be, you know, the text would be the subtext. Here's this person. She has interesting style. Let's talk about her style, right? But the subtext, it doesn't exist in a bubble. So the subtext, the text is we're doing a story on how much money AOC spent on her suit or how pretty AOC is, right? The subtext is we shouldn't take this woman seriously. She's too pretty. She's uh, she should be, you know, a starlet, not a politician. We shouldn't take this woman too seriously because how can she care about uh, public policy if she spends so much money? Uh, how, how, how can she really care about, uh, you know, economic public policy if she spends so much money on a suit? Right. All the and and then the subtext even more so around race, around gender, around class. Um, all this, all the initial dismissing of her because she had been a bartender, 
right? The, te the text was, is she flighty because she was a bartender? The subtext is working class people don't belong in politics. Mm, working mm -hmm. class people are not intellectual. Working class people um, shouldn't get to decide what happens with legislation that affects working class people, right? right. So thinking about text versus subtext, right? Um, that's a really okay. important uh, set of media literacy skills right there. Um, and then also, you know, following the money. Um, that's, that, that's always my number one thing. If I'm wondering what's going on with an issue, I think, well, who's profiting? And that leads me right to the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Um, I will also say that uh, I am taking a brief break to do this podcast from writing uh, my media literacy graphic novel, uh, Breaking the News, which is going exciting. to have... Yeah, it's um, it's very exciting. Um, the I'm teaming up with an award-winning artist, Gideon Kenzel, um, and our book will really be aimed at arming people with the tools they need to apply critical thinking skills to all the media they engage with, whether it's news, whether it's video games, whether it's TikTok videos, um, and to sort of uh, arm them against propaganda and disinformation to help them deconstruct uh, various uh, you know, negative and harmful tropes to help them learn why they should maybe create their own media and how to do that. Um, so yeah, it's going to be really exciting. Wow. Right now, at this very moment, I'm working on the chapter on representation issues. When can we expect this graphic novel? Oh, that's a tricky question. Um, it, pandemic threw a bit of a, of a wrench into, into my <laughs> sure. writing schedule. And frankly, um, I will be honest about this, into my ability to focus, into my ability to... So um, so right now, uh, I got an extension. Um, I may need another one. We'll see. I'm not sure. Um, ideally, this will uh, this will be out in 2022. Uh, the, the book is called uh, Breaking the News, and it is uh, forthcoming from First Second books, which is a, um, an award-winning graphic novel in print. Amazing. We can look forward to that. And of course, we should all go out and buy your book, Reality Bites Back, which has so much great information in it. Um, and uh, yeah, well, I guess until the next book is out and until people finish Reality Bites Back, how can people find you online to see what you're writing and what you're doing? Um, I, uh, I'm technically still on Twitter, but I never, ever, ever check it about, about 12 years of rape threats almost every day was enough. And I kind of took a step away. Um, it wears but you I, down. I'm there. It, yeah. It, it, you know, after a while, you know, um, but I'm, I'm still technically there at J E N N P O Z N E R. If people want to ask me questions, they can tag me. I will only see it if you tag me. Um, because I don't read Twitter anymore. Um, but I, but if you tag me with specific media questions, I'm happy to answer them as long as it's, you know, as long as no creepers. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, I'm on Facebook. Feel free to find me on Facebook, Jennifer L. Posner, P-O-Z-N-E-R. Also, Jen Posner on Instagram. I don't really use it very much either, but um, but yeah, J-E-N-N-P-O-Z-N-E-R. I'm, I'm all over the place. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This was fun. And it was a good excuse to not write for an hour. <laughs> Woohoo! Everybody needs a break sometimes. <laughs> yeah, on a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, I love chatting with Jennifer. I love seeing her insightful posts on my Facebook feed. So I recommend following her there. Uh, that was great. 
big, 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 big thanks to Jennifer for joining me on this episode. All right, let's start these band interviews with Sue, who explains her concerns over the content of this song. All right, the song Her. Oh, boy. This is not, this song is about uh, Joaquin Phoenix falling in love with his phone. <laughs> um, no, this is this is the one that you and I knew that we wanted to talk to each other about because yeah. I I remember you you had you you had some concerns. Well, so like again, I at first I was like, "What's this song about?" Then like when we I got the demo with the lyrics, the first it's like, "Buy her emails," and I'm like, "Okay, I guess that's what this song is about." <laughs> but like I couldn't really understand any of the other lyrics. You know what I'm saying? And and I guess that yeah. I. I don't know. You and I have had some differences of opinion in the uh, in the past about how uh, this band should use its polit its platform about like specific political things, like candidates to vote for and stuff like mm -hmm. that. You know, and um, like I was, I guess that I and I think, but you know, we talked about it, and and like, I feel like we kind of like came to like an agreement about it you know and sure. i was i was just like we i was just like worried that it was that like it was like all right time to diss Hillary clinton <laughs> even though it doesn't matter anymore i yeah. I, I didn't know what the, you know and I, I was just but or let's stand hillary clinton even though that's weird nobody we wouldn't do that you know yeah. <laughs> like you know um i guess that i was like very pleasantly surprised when like you know i found out what the song you know the actual lyrics you know, um, and um, I didn't actually, I do, I do remember you asking me if I knew any, like, I remember I was like, oh, Geraldine Ferraro, don't forget her, you know, like, yeah. because she, and. Uh, I wanted but, to make sure I didn't forget, you know, like Wikipedia, looking up random right. stuff online, <laughs> you know, you never know if there's going to be like a glaring omission. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted someone else to kind of double check the names that I had just in case. <laughs> But I was like, honestly, I am a person that is still triggered every time I see Sarah Palin's name. Mm. Um, like I, I, I don't know what. I someday I'll examine like mm. why I had like she was the person that I that I could not even talk about without flying into a rage. Wow. Like I don't know. You know, because I don't, you know, I'll get there. I'll get there someday. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean. But like, I, I feel like it's, it's. Um, I probably, she probably like. I don't, I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't know that much about her. I watched that like one HBO documentary, Game Changer or whatever, like ten times because she was sad in it, and I wanted to see her be sad. Damn. You know. Here. And like that's not that's like very that's a very unsue like thing to do. Yeah, you know? I'd say so. Like, I don't like like it when people are sad. No, you know? and it's like a, it's an instinct in me that like only the people that I really hate like get you know you know like and and I don't know you know that that that's all like you know we we mentioned her you know like I was still I still got a little flare up of that feeling when I saw her name mm. on that lyric sheet you know. Mm. So I don't know, like, it's, it's weird. Like, I don't think it's like super important for me to delve into that part of my psyche right now, you know, <laughs> there's, but, a lot, uh... <laughs> there's other stuff going on, you know, <laughs> her. So her, 
is a song that I like a lot. Her, you probably remember, her was definitely around in the batch of songs that we were looking at for Capture the Flag. And I remember you just being like, I think this is really cool, but what in the world would I do with a song vocally? I had no idea. I had no idea vocally what to do. So I think it was pretty much demoed exactly as it is, as it made it to the record. Like the section, the, the, the length of sections may have been adjusted, but the, the order of the sections and the way they go, I think was pretty much set for years. Um, so I always liked it. Um, I always wanted to write a song in 5-4 that reminded me of the first song off the Drive Like Jehu Yank Crime record. Yeah. Um, because I love the way that song feels, and it's in 5-4, so I wanted to write something that was cool like that. Um, and I think I came up with this riff like just messing around with an amp one day, just trying to come up with something sort of discordant but also was quirky and so like um the riff is literally just sliding um parallel um like uh i let's see what you what do you call it it's like a i guess diminished ninth so it's so it's like a ninth but it's a half step flat so it's essentially a half step apart, but in octaves. I'm not describing that very well, but so that's why it has that weird discordant sound, and it's really fun to play. Then the B section is sort of like me trying to write a Voivod song. Did you succeed? Well, I think it sounds like a Voivod part, but the way Dave, I think Dave approached it a little more like a fusion drummer would approach it, and less like a like a prog drummer and that's good um because i think it makes the part sound better and more musical i I think Um, that's something that we we talk about a lot um or think about when we're writing songs that if if any one person's part sounds too much like something else is out there that's out there uh we tend to kind of not worry about it too much knowing that well once once Dave on drums, you know, comes in, that's going to change it. Once my vocals come in, that'll change it. And I think that that uh, is always kind of really fun. It's almost like a secret sometimes to like the average music listener. You know, it's a secret that we have a Voivod part, like that they might not even hear it because they hear his drums and my vocals. Yeah. But now they know it's not a secret because we just told them. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm... You know, I don't think anybody could ever claim to write 100% original music, so yeah. it's fine. Um, yeah, I I like when you finally sort of came up with the idea for the vocals over this song. I I think you had the idea for 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 writing lyrics like this, and we had two songs in mind mm. about what mm-hmm. you could try it over, and this one just. Because it's in five, it's like da 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 da, and it just it just worked, and it sounded cool, and it was kind of kind of a circus lupus kind of phrasing. Totally. And so it just worked for me, you know. 
Yeah, and obviously the first line I had was, but her emails, and then that's all I needed to know to yeah. know how the rest of the song was going to go. I was like, I could figure out all the other words uh, anytime. <laughs> uh, also, I lo- I'm proud of the fact that it starts in 5-4 and never changes meter the entire song. So, you know, sometimes people will use the odd meter as an effect in one place and then settle down into five, four, four for the, the chorus or something. But this stays, this stays in five, four through the whole. So- oh no, actually Uh-oh. there's one measure that's in four, four for some reason. Let me see if I can find <laughs> it in the music. Yeah. It switches to f- at, at the end of the A part down and it goes so that's in four, four. And then it goes back into five. And then that never happens again, right? Never happens again. I don't know why I could have done that. You don't get to claim Yeah. Well, forget what I said. Forget what I said. Okay. Delete. I don't know why I did that, but it just, it's almost like a trick. Like, Oh, you might think, oh, it's starting to settle down and get back into normal, and then it kicks it back in with a five thing. Anything else about her before I move on? I don't think so. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of self-explanatory. Uh, what about the song "Her"? Her? Her? Is that like her emails? Her this? Her that? Yeah, yeah. I like it. I like it. <laughs> Is that the one that has the the breakdown at the end? That's like gets gets a little spastic. Yes. Yeah. I'm like, did that? I think that wasn't the name of it for a while, right? Like when it was in the studio, where we were calling it something I, else. I don't know. I well, the songs always have like a fake weird title for a long time, until until the lyrics are like set in stone, and and sometimes even then I'm like still having to decide, well, what do I want to call this song? Something about wolf, like a metal a wolf of, or... Yeah, there's a lot of songs where we were like wolf number two or whatever. It was a play on laser wolf mixed right. with something that was about it being hard. Um, <laughs> metal wolf. So that's one of Maybe. those songs that I, I look forward to meeting it in the live setting because yes. it was like all about like, oh gosh, it's really hard and can we play it? And oh, are we going to nail this part? And um, that it just it was a, a complicated music piece, and and now I feel like we're gonna re-meet it as like what it's about, like her email, yeah, that, you know, yeah. and it's gonna take on a whole different, um, yeah, a whole different I- identity of being like the a rad feminist anthem song. <laughs> uh, you spoke about her a little bit, but mm. yeah. Anything her, else about that? Hers the shit. Um, I, I, hers just like the. I can't wait to play that song live. Um, it's so weird and crazy. I feel like I really kind of pushed for there to be a. Uh, it's not a drum solo, but it's like there's a drum moment at the end of her. Oh, a drum moment. There's a drum moment. There's a moment where things shift and we're it, we're opening it up for for drums to happen. You know. And this is something, yeah. this is like the type of moment that I knew this band could have, but like had to be done in the right way. Um, because we are not a band where it's like time for the drum solo. And, you know, we go like, 
you know it's like that kind of shit's not going to happen and it shouldn't it's not like you know the time okay place, i was like well maybe i don't know i mean yeah we'll see when we get back and we're all so deprived from never playing live we're like let's just have a drum solo um, yeah we're gonna think everything is, sounds really great and no <laughs> yeah, one right. no one will like it yeah yeah context but like it's uh, there's a drum moment where brooks kind of again had this idea for like how these chords were going to work at the end and they were all happening kind of quickly and like very close to one another. And my suggestion was just to like spread them out a little bit, basically, mm. um, you know, play this chord and then just like let it ring for a couple bars and then go to your next one as opposed to like, cut, 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 you know, um, and that just opens it up and it's all in five also, which like keeps it interesting. So it's all in five, four. Um, and there's a drum moment, and I think it's great. I think it's beautiful. You're just like saying names of uh, female politicians at the end, so it's not entirely just this like drum focused like fucking Phil Collins fill, right? It's like we're still being <laughs> musical, we're still like uh, playing the song, um, but it really does open up in this in this cool way. Um, and yeah, otherwise, I mean, you know, the subject matter of the song is so right on. You're taught you, but her emails, but her everything, but her laugh, but her smile, but her credentials, but her, you know, will always find mm -hmm. something wrong with the female candidate. Like, let's talk about uh, Kamala Harris and how, like, at the vice presidential debate, people were like, oh, well, she was pulling her punches because she didn't want to come across as an angry black woman. It's like, there is nothing that she could have done to be received uh, in a positive light, like, oh, so she wasn't being an angry black woman uh, right. in your eyes. So she was pulling her punches. Right. Um, yeah. But if she wasn't pulling her punches and she was more aggressive, you would have called her an angry black woman. So what is she supposed to do in order to come off as a vice president to you? You know, you will always find something wrong uh, with a woman's performance in politics. Um that being said, uh, I mean, I was, I was going to say, but people really seem to love AOC, but like, you know. She's hyper-critiqued, though. People hate uh, AOC. Right, the, exactly. Yeah. 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 Like the, the lefties and liberals are all really rallying, you know, behind her, which is awesome to see. Um, but yeah, like you said, hyper-critiqued, like everything, her yeah. clothing, her the way she speaks, the way like, you know, people she surrounds herself with, the fact that she's like a huge Bernie supporter. It's like they will find anything uh, to tear her down. Yeah. And so here's my prediction. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Lay it on me. I, I think, uh, so let's say, uh, Biden has just won, right. And let's say that everything goes smoothly and he's the president, um, come inauguration. Uh, he will have these four years and then he will have, he'll run again, right. To try to do the next four years. Um, and so that's eight years later at this point, And then it's time for somebody new. And then here she is. Now it's AOC time, right? And she will okay. have been in politics for like 10 years. So people won't be able to say that she's like ill-experienced or whatever other bullshit they want to try to say about her. Um, and you have AOC and you have Kamala at this point. And now yeah. maybe you have a Kamala AOC ticket, which in my mind is like undefeatable a decade from now. Oh, this okay. Is where I think we're heading. And you don't think Joe Biden will die before a second term or during I'm not a second term. planning on him dying. Uh, but if he did, then you got Kamala and it's great. Yeah. Yeah. But luckily for both of us, we're not in, uh, in the game of predicting, <laughs> <laughs> predicting what fucking asshole is going to be in power telling us what to do. Yeah. It is funny that they're so old. 
Trump and Biden. Like they're older than Funny Obama. Is a word for it. Yeah, they're older than Obama. They're older than George Bush, who was president for eight years. You know, like they're old. They're really fucking yeah. old. Yeah. No thanks. And white and men, obviously, but old. Yeah. You know, like yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, just just knowing, just thinking about my grandparents, I'm just like. How do they have the energy to do this job? How could they possibly take on the stress of the, of running this country? Yeah. Uh, it just seems like it's a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care how healthy you are. It's just like, uh, let someone else have a turn. Yeah. Um, but, you know, here we are. Here we are. All right, look, if my grandparents ever hear this podcast, which they won't, let me just say, I love you so much, but you should not run for president in 2024. That's all I'm saying. Stay home. Relax. You're retired. Enjoy it. I love you. Keep listening to hear the song Her in full. Finally, for once, all the way through. <laughs> the album Wonderful Hell isn't really available on vinyl right now because the vinyl plants are so backed up. So grab it on Bandcamp uh, or stream it in all the usual places. Big thanks to Brooks Harlan for chopping up today's song to create the podcast normal theme song. What song did he put behind this part right here, right now that you're hearing? Did you guess it right? Do you get a high five? I hope so. If you'd like to support this podcast and this band, stop what you're doing and share, subscribe, and review this podcast. It's free and it helps. You can buy WOW merch from b9store.com, shirtkiller.com, and in the UK and Europe through Cortex Records and lhpmerch.com. Uh, why don't you buy my book, Making Spaces Safer, from akpress.org, or, of course, your local independent bookstore. It's available in Spanish from Orsini Press, and I'm always on the lookout for translations in other languages. So if you know of a local publisher that can help out in your country, please put us in contact. If you need a new overdrive or boost pedal designed and built by Brooks himself in our shop, head to bigcrunchamprepair.com and join my Patreon to help me keep this podcast going. You can join in at the seeds level at only a dollar a month, or donate more for bonus stuff like extra episodes, behind the scenes info, and rosy slideshows, and that bonus interview I was talking about with Jennifer Posner, as promised. You can pay monthly or annually for a discount. So thanks in advance for doing that. And you know what? Big thanks to Amy, Majda, Mario, Anna, Anthony R, Anthony C, Dylan, and Dominic for helping to calm me down with wine and food at the airport recently when I was flying to Chicago to present at a conference and I was scared to see so many exposed noses from my fellow travelers. I didn't like it, okay? I made it through, I think, without getting sick. Um, but it is still scary out there. So vax up, mask up, and cheers.